you're listening to High Temperature Times, a podcast designed to keep up with the fast-paced industry of refractories. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. Back in January, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Dino Biandillo to talk about mortars. We learned how to appropriately butter a brick, we learned how to identify the right mortars to use, and we learned tips and tricks about how to get the most out of a brick-laid installation. But the amazing thing about the refractory industry, and really just learning as a whole, is you can always learn more things by looking at a topic from another angle. That's why on this episode of HGT, I'll be talking more on mortars, but this time I'll be talking to the science of mortars and how mortars aren't just a liquid brick that glues your brick together. So yeah, mortars, this old chestnut. Where do we start? I guess I'll approach it like I approach my 10th grade English papers, with the definition. Google totally fails me here, thinking we work for the construction industry with blasphemous talk regarding a mixture of lime, cement, and sand. Shame on you, Google. Shame on you. Fortunately, I keep the Harbison Walker Handbook of Refractory Practices handy for purposes just like these. A mortar is a plastic mixture consisting of fine aggregates, one or more binders, a liquid medium, typically water, and sometimes additives. So it's kind of like a monolithic, except that it's used for brick, and the aggregates are not of such variable sizing, rather quite small, to allow the brick to sit nicely together. Another great line from said book is as follows. Masonry built of refractory bricks consists of many relatively small units laid together to conform to a prescribed plan or design. The strength of the masonry depends on the strength of the individual brick, the manner in which they are laid together, and the mortar material used in the joints. First, that quote gives extra credence to the points that Dino brought up in our first Mortars episode back in January through its comments on the importance of how brick are laid properly. Also, the quote helps mortar it all together, where the first talked about the use of binders and the second talked about the mortar's role in brick construction. Binders help define how a mortar will set. For this, we break it down into three general categories, air set mortars, heat set mortars, and phosphate bottom mortars. Air set mortars are mortars that form a rigid set merely upon drying. They're using cements or silicates to help glue those brick together. So just like monolithics, once the mix is dry, you get a good hard set. If it were a mono, you could remove the forms and feel the firmness, except with mortars you can't because it's between the two brick. Still, just like those cement bonded monos, you still need to give it heat to truly set it. This is where air set is a bit of a misnomer. People have sometimes made the mistake of using refractory mortars for fireplaces. Most refractory mortars are still fairly weak and water soluble until they see a small degree of heat. They get the majority of their strength after something like 250 Fahrenheit, but they don't become water soluble until after around 650 Fahrenheit when the bond has truly set. It, however, HWI does offer a Portland cement-based mortar, Mortarmix 413, that will be fully air set after a set time, roughly 24 hours, not temperature. The misnomer, however, isn't always a bad thing, as it makes the mortar fairly easy to correct should adjustments be needed. A small spritz of water reactivates the mortar and extends the total working time. Heat set mortars, as you might expect, are mortars that don't form a rigid set until they see high temperatures. That's because these mortars do not contain cements and instead impart strength when they form a ceramic bond fusing to the brick that they are connecting. That means that they still remain relatively fluidic in behavior until roughly 2000 to 2300 degrees Fahrenheit. They do contain a small degree of organic binders to give just the tiniest bit of green strength, but those burn out early, leaving a weak powder that allows the bricks in the wall to move and release stresses at lower temperatures. That can be a good thing for certain applications. Additionally, heat setting mortars are generally more slag resistant than air setting mortars. They are also typically more refractory as well, just like an ultra low cement castable is more refractory than a conventional castable. Cement's a flux, right? The last category is phosphate bonded mortars. These are often lumped with heat setting mortars because they don't develop a strong bond at low temperatures. However, the strength does develop well before the 2,000-2300 degree temperature mentioned earlier. 
This is because the phosphoric acid used to bond the material reacts with the aluminum metal oxide components around 700 Fahrenheit to form a strong, insoluble bond. So as you can probably put together, some degree of movement is allowed in the brick to relieve the stresses brought on by starting up the unit, but not to the degree that proper heat set mortars are capable of. But that's all old hat and pretty basic fundamentals of mortars. We typically stop there. But here's the thing about the refractory industry. Everyone always talks about how important having the highest performance refractory is. Lower cement materials, lower porosity brick, less impurities, special additives, bonding mechanisms, you name it. We look to technology and special engineering to get the most out of our refractory. But when it comes to mortars, you just do what your daddy did. I have troweled books on refractories. See what I did there? And aside from fairly good product descriptions and a measure of reading between the lines that I'm particularly proud of, the most I get is the same basic marketing copy about how mortars bond brick together. So beyond the basic introduction you've already gotten, I'm going to do my best to put together what I think will be a fairly concise knowledge base for mortars, mortar selection, and key considerations. Most likely, it will be my shortest episode to date because, like I said, there's not a lot to go on. But I'm just going to go ahead and bury the lead here with one of my favorite anecdotes that really hammers home the degree to which we're all flying by the seat of our pants on mortars. There are quite a few excellent pieces of literature from the refractory days of old, such as the 1961 Modern Refractory Practice Handbook, the 1980 HW Handbook of Refractory Practice, and the 1992 Handbook of Industrial Refractory Technology. You can see how public opinion changes throughout the years, where earlier books place great importance on carefully matching mortar chemistry to that of the brick as bonding. But in the last book I mentioned, the 1992 Handbook by Stephen Carniglia and Gordon Barna, they state the following. The old notion that the chemical composition of a mortar has to be a close match to that of the bricks it joins is no longer universally observed. Well, Stephen and Gordon, it's funny you should say that because 30 years later, we're right back to that same general concept. (laughs) Some people are doing their best to match chemistry, and rightly so. You wouldn't want to use a fire clay mortar with a silica-free brick. After all, the silica-free brick is probably being used because of potential reactivity of the system. But other people are throwing caution to the wind. Some iron holding furnaces are using Harwako bond between Carundel XD brick, who in their right mind recommended using a 50% aluminum mortar with high-purity aluminum brick. Well, it works well, though, because I guess Harwako bond does well in metal contact applications, and Carundel bond is comparably less user-friendly. The primary reason why chemical composition is the default for mortar selection is because of thermal expansion characteristics. If your brick expands more than your mortar, or vice versa, then you'll shear the bond and it will not perform its duties as a mortar. While I could go through the numbers and show that the absolute difference in size is like less than 1%, I'll instead point out that in cyclical conditions, you want a material that will allow the brick to grow and shrink and not have cracks open up and be propagated through the extremely strong bonding mortar. And in other applications, heat-set mortars are free to expand under different rates than the brick because they're not setting until they get hot anyways. All I'm trying to say is that I get why matching mortar chemistry is important, but don't let that be the little box you live in. There are lots of mortars out there that do tons of great things and can do more than just bond the half dozen brands that match their chemistry most, most closely. So let's step outside of that box and talk about mortars as a whole, going back to the brick built foundation of the whole topic. In a family feud style matchup, we asked 100 people what the primary function of a mortar is. Unsurprisingly, well, we couldn't find 100 people that would talk to us, but the top answer from them would be that that it's to bond the brick together. And that's certainly an answer. But the first and foremost purpose is that mortars are construction aid. They're used to correct the tiny imperfections in the brick. Brick are not perfectly smooth, and they need a little putty between them to act 
purposefully smooth. Yes, they do bond together, but that's just a function of being perfectly smooth and being made in particular that like to stick together. Without the mortar, your brick are not gas tight, and the brick joints are more easily penetrated by molten metals, slags, or other chemical bad guys. A couple great points about that. For one, resin bought a brick that go into ladles are often laid dry. That's probably because these brick are actually incredibly smooth. And maybe something about the resin too. The resin bond creates a nice surface that allows brick to be effectively laid without any construction aid. And the resin can help bond the brick together at temperature. But for brick like Corundle XD and Nike S65W, you'll need a mortar to help those brick lay level, distribute their load evenly, and avoid attack on the joints. The key property for mortars required to accomplish this is the particle size. Particle size and particle size distribution are key terms in material science, and they're important for every facet of the refractory industry. In bricks, we want a good particle size distribution to get great grain density and reduce porosity. We want similar effects in monolithics, but we can also do a lot more with particle size distribution, like having coarse aggregates for thermal shock resistant and tiny particles to assist with material flow. But in mortars, we want our particles to be as small as possible, as well as being well distributed. Former AP green mortars like Sarasat and Satanite have particle sizing listing on their data sheets, but Narco and Harbison Walker brands did not. Don't read into it too much. Generally, you want your maximum particle size to be 35 mesh, which means 0.42 millimeters. Too large and your mortar is too gritty, preventing the bricks from sitting well. Also too large and the particles will settle out of suspension, affecting the consistency of the mix throughout the install. On the other hand, too small and I'm sure there could be issues somewhere with performance, but the reality is that you want to be able to afford your mortar and nanoparticles just aren't needed. But in addition to keeping the particles small, you still want a good distribution to prevent shrinkage upon drying and firing. Think about it like the salt flats in Death Valley, California. You know, they're all made of, of mud that's going to be a similar size, particles that are a similar, similar size, and it settles down on the ground. As the mud dries, it lumps up, leaving massive cracks through the bed. Better particle packing means good consistency with less water and reduces overall shrinkage. The less your mortar shrinks, the less cracks open up and would allow penetration in the joints. I've also heard this referred to as potato chipping, which just gives me a wonderful little visual. Going back to that salt flats idea, another way to reduce the amount of cracking is to reduce the overall thickness. A fat joint like you see on your brick house is going to shrink and crack more than a thin three to four millimeter joint when it gets hot and dehydrates and bonds because there's less water in less material. So when laying your bricks, you want your joints to be as thin as possible. I can't state this enough. We can supply the highest performance material on the market, but if your joints are too thick, it's not going to perform well. It would be like the equivalent of adding too much water to your castable. A crappy mortar laid well is going to perform better than an amazing mortar laid poorly. Thinner is better. Mortars are designed to have small particles so that they can be laid thin. Thinner is better. Okay, all right, I'm... <laughs> I'll step down from my little soapbox now, especially because I should probably put a little asterisk after that whole spiel. <laughs> there are a group of mortars that do work very well in thicker applications, patching mortars, really patching plasters, but they're designed like mortars. Before I go into that, what they are and their limitations though, let me help lay some groundwork about how we delineate these bad boys. There's this test rig called a VCAT penetration apparatus that will tell you the consistency of the mortar you're using. It's a simple little number where a needle uses gravity to be pushed down into a brass cup filled with the mortar. The consistency is measured by determining the depth of penetration from the VCAT needle. A high penetration like 88 would be like water. It sinks down really far. It's far too thin for most mortar joints. 
A 77 consistency would be what you're looking for for a dipping mortar. A 33 or a 44 would be like on the troweling edge, with a 33 being a heavy trowel mortar and a 44 being a regular trowel mortar. A 22 consistency is a thick mortar, but still moderately trowelable. This consistency would typically be desired for coatings or stopper rods. A low penetration, categorized as an 11 consistency, would equate to something like a thick mastic material. You wouldn't want to trowel this paste, but you might want it for something like coatings or maybe even some patchings. So while you'd want to lay the brick with a thinly buttered 33 consistency mortar or a dipped 77 consistency mortar, 11s and 22s also exist. These are patching mortars. We're talking about mortars like Green Patch 421 and Gref Patch 85P. You might also mix up some Satanite to a 22 or 33 consistency to use it as a flexible rigidizer over refractory ceramic fiber. Some forge furnaces do that. Patching mortars can be laid fairly thick and still dry out to a great hardness without shrinking and cracking. Green Patch 421 can be used as a patching material up to 2 inches thick, and Gref Patch 85P can be used up to 4 inches thick, assuming that it's been keyed in and the patching site appropriately prepped. In these cases, after cleaning the site as best as possible, you'll want to wet the existing refractory, typically with a thin mortar of similar chemistry. So coat the old refractory with some number 36 refractory cement for Green Patch 421, or Green Set 85P for Gref Patch 85P. This is because those fired refractories behind it are sponges for the liquid and the patching material. As soon as the patching material hits the wall, all of the surf surface water will get sucked right out of it, and you won't get a good bond. But by coating it with a nice watery mortar beforehand, your patch will adhere well and stay well. But don't forget, you got to dry it out and all that. That's a different episode, though. Well, I love talking about patching material and those unique quote-unquote mortars that can solve these problems. That whole ditty about fired refractories sucking water out of the mortar sets me up really well for my next point. Water retention. This term here describes the mortar's ability to remain workable after it's applied to the brick. It's important because if the water is pulled into the pores of the brick too rapidly, the next brick set on top would not bond properly with the mortar. It would just sit on top of the dried joint. Therefore, the mortar must be able to hold moisture for a short period of time. Water retention time required is related to the porosity of the brick. When laying insulating brick, you'll need a mortar with greater retention time than something like DV38 with really low porosity. That highly porous IFB is going to, again, be like a sponge for the water, and if the mortar has all the moisture sucked out before you put the brick on top of it, there's not going to be any hold between the two bricks. Water retention time is typically only posted on mortars supplied wet, as the amount of water added to dry mortars will affect the water retention time. However, those times are listed in minutes, not seconds. It's not a race. Well, I mean, everything in life's a race, but this one's more like a tortoise and less like the hare. Some mortars have much longer retention times than others, such as number 36 refractory cement and Cerset with their minimum of 14-minute water retention time. That's great for being able to get in there and correcting any mistakes or when dealing with more porous brick. Now, one important thing is that you shouldn't confuse water retention time with air setting. A mortar can dry between bricks but not form strong bonds yet. You can exceed water retention time of a mortar without having its air set bond form yet. As I mentioned before, only Portland cement bonded mortars truly bond at room temperature. Aluminum silicates and sodium silicates need to see a couple hundred degrees before they really bond, but that bond is strong. Carbon bonded and phosphoric bonded mortars are strong after only 230 Fahrenheit, but really get their strength, their real bond going after 600 Fahrenheit. Clay bonding agents and the heat set mortars are weak after having all their water removed, but form extremely strong bonds after seeing temperatures above 2000 Fahrenheit. Let's talk about strength a little more. 
Even though the primary job of a mortar is to fill the joint and prevent penetration to make it gas tight, bond strength is still important because it reflects the ability of a mortar to fill a joint. Three things can be measured when breaking mortar. One, the strength of the brick. Two, the strength of adherence. And three, the strength of the mortar. The bond strength should be a measure of the strength of the mortar, number three, and not the strength of the adherence at the interface or the strength of the brick, items one and two. We show this test in our data sheets measuring the MOR of the joint after drying and after a certain heat up temperature. Let's just say it's pretty darn strong. We're talking about hundreds of PSI. Even air set mortars like HW Corundabond, that's a 99.2% alumina, can achieve a 240 PSI MOR strength after just 230 Fahrenheit. That means we just remove the water. We're not even talking about like cements activating. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of crazy to me. Anyways, phosphate bonded mortars are typically tested after 230 Fahrenheit and 1500 to show their difference before the FOS bond and after the FOS bond has set. Heat set mortars typically don't get tested for MOR because they gain their strength to temperature and often those bonds will be compromised when brought back down. Makes for an unfair test. I guess you could do HMOR, but I don't know, why would we even need that? Note, all of these tests are brick that have properly laid joints of three millimeter or less thickness. Nice and thin. One other fun thing to mention is this crazy phenomenon called aging. This really only applies to phosphate bonded mortars since phosphates are crazy little beasts, but aging is the change of the consistency of the mortar with time. With standard air set mortars like silicate bonded mortars, the consistency slowly changes with time at an almost unnoticeable rate. And the reason for it here is because the silicates can react with the acidic components in the mortar body like clay to polymerize. The main reason we look at aging in these mortars is for shelf life considerations. But phosphate bonded mortars are kind of crazy. Once water is added, the mortar acts very thin, then levels out to a rate similar of the silicate bonded mortar. It still changes over time, but much slower. The reason for the quick change is likely to the changes in the pH of the mix upon adding the acidic phos components. This is one reason why phosphate mortars are only supplied wet. With cements and silicates, the consistency you get after adding water is the consistency you'll get while working. This wouldn't be the case with phos bonded mortars. They are prepared in the plant and worked until the consistency stabilizes before being shipped out. So basically, if someone has a, a dry phosphate bonded mortar, I probably wouldn't trust it. But anyways, I gotta say, I I've impressed myself so far. There's actually a lot of good information out there. You just gotta know to look for it. The thing I haven't gotten to cover is what mortar you should use. And here's where my chipper attitude turns somber. I think I made it pretty clear in previous episodes that I'm not much of a bricklayer. I can hardly call myself a brick picker-upper. I've done one mortaring job on my back porch, and it was really shameful. So I'm probably not the best person to be recommending mortars. If you've got a mortar you love, I'd love to talk it up. I don't get enough insight from the people who actually do the work, and that's defo got to change. You should reach out. But what I can lay out is some of the few great mortars that I've actually had the pleasure of talking with people on. I've already mentioned some of the neat ones, like patching mortars and Satanite for rigidizer applications, but there are some other really great ones. For usability, you really can't go wrong with Saraset and Saraset 3000, but I probably don't need to beat that horse to death because it's the flagship. Another one I already mentioned is Harwako Bond. It's easy to use, it's non-shrinking, it's nice and plastic and can be easily worked with a trowel. It's got high temperature strength, but doesn't dry out too rapidly. Um, under some conditions, Harwako Bond's been applied as a thin coating to inner surfaces of the furnace wall to reduce gas leakage and air, air infiltration. And that even works at high temperatures thanks to the non-shrinking nature. For phosphate bonded mortars, 
I do love me some green set 85p and green set 94p. Smooth working characteristics, high alumina for refractoriness, good resistance to slag attack, and just really, it's the bee's knees. Now, here's the thing. If you've had to sit through any refractory fundamentals before, you've probably learned that the lime found in cements is a flux. They lower the overall refractoriness of the material. That's partly why brick are typically more refractory than their equivalent monolithics. Well, FOSS does this too. FOSS can be a flux at high temperature, reducing the strength at those high temperatures. Well, we want our mortar to be as strong as the brick it's bonding, lest we preferentially wear that area away. But if we use green set 85P to bond something like Aladdin 80 brick, then that FOSS bonded mortar is going to be weaker than the brick it's bonding at high temperatures because of that phosphate flux. So we should probably consider using green set 94P here to A, increase the overall refractoriness by using more refractory raw materials, but also B, to reduce the impurities that would cause the mortar to be weaker at higher temperatures. So yeah, we could kind of dip back into that whole matching chemistries thing there, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I digress, but uh, two great mortars that I think people should keep, their, keep on their radars. So yeah, some really great problem solver mortar products out there, but there are tons more than that. With over 50 mortars available, HWI has got pretty much every avenue covered, whether it be dry or wet, thick or thin, heat set or air set or phosphate, performance focused or user friendliness focused. It's all there in whatever chemistry you need. Just don't do the math on those permutations because it will probably calculate to be over 50. But yeah, now you know more than you'll probably ever need to know about mortars. I think I maybe overdid it. Sorry, not sorry. But whether you elect to believe it or not, the mortars you use are important. More important than just being the little glue that helps your bricks do their jobs. I hope you learned something about mortar science and mortar selection. I really appreciated being able to take the time to learn with you and share some information. Next time you're looking for the right mortar to do the job, give us a holler at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and we can go through the exercise together. The right mortar can change a high-performance refractory installation to an excellent performance refractory installation. Aside from that, thanks for listening to my rambling. I'll see you next time.